Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Aisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today we have the brilliant political mind Keith Boykin on the show. Keith is a CNN political commentator, an award-winning and New York Times bestselling author of several books, and a former White House aide to President Bill Clinton. He has also taught at the Institute for Research in African-American Studies at Columbia University and at American University, and he is a co-founder and first board president of the National Black Justice Coalition. Now Keith has come out with his fifth book, Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America, and it is an essential read. It's Keith's argument that our country must reckon with the past in order for us to fight racism, sexism, homophobia, and reach true equality. And he does this through stories of his personal experiences with influential figures like President Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Louis Farrakhan, Herman Cain, Kobe Bryant, and even Jamie Dimon. It's really compelling, and I highly recommend everyone check it out. This was such a special episode for me because not only do I deeply admire Keith's grasp of politics, but as you'll hear in the interview, he also happens to be my cousin. So naturally, it was a joy to get to talk to him on both a personal and professional level, and I really hope you all enjoy our conversation as well. So with that, I give you Keith Boykin. Welcome to It's Lit. Hey, Maisha. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, no, not as much as I appreciate it. And, you know, I feel like full disclosure up front, I, I should tell our, our regular listeners uh, <laughs> a fun fact about you. <laughs> you know, a lot of people will recognize you as being a CNN political commentator, of being the author of several books, including the best-selling Beyond the Download, but they might not know that we are cousins. Yes. And <laughs> we are cousins. Uh, that said, you know, before anybody accuses me of nepotism, you were already in the Clinton White House when I was like entering college and had already published your first book by the time I graduated. So you're actually doing me a solid here coming on our uh, humble podcast here at The Roots to discuss your new book, Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America. This is your fifth book and we're going to dig into it. But before we do, we have a little ritual here at It's Lit. I mean, you and I don't actually need an icebreaker, but... <laughs> What we like to do, because this is a podcast about Black writers, Black thought, Black ideas, is we like to ask each of our authors to tell us a book or books that inspired their own journey, that was like, that broke something wide open for you, that was mind-blowing in the way that you process things, and maybe where you got to where you are today. Well, there's so many books I can I can think of. I don't even know where to begin. Uh, well, first, I know it sounds trite, but when I was a child, I read the Bible. Um, I didn't read it all, but I read a lot of the New Testament. And I was inspired by the words of Jesus, believe it or not. Um, and that had a huge impact on me as a child. But I also couldn't understand why people called themselves Christians who didn't seem to be following the rules of what I was hearing from Christianity about love. I also remember as a child reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that had a huge impact on me because it inspired me to be more of an activist, uh, especially at an early age. Um, this is the interesting one. When I was in college, I read Alice Walker's A Color Purple, and I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. I didn't understand why I was reading it. And then years later, after college, I went back and read it, and it became my favorite novel. 
so I mean, it's 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 a, it's a kind of reflection of how people's people kind of grow, evolve, and change. And it's amazing to me when I look back at myself. How did I not like this book? It's such an amazing book, you know. But um, I didn't. It was. It's now like one of my favorite books. But the other one of my favorite novels is uh, The Prophets, uh, mm. which just came out earlier this year by Robert Jones. Yes, uh, an amazing book. And you know, my own full disclosure. Part of the reason why I love this book so much is because it's kind of what I wanted to write years ago. 25 years ago, when I first started writing, I wanted to write a book just like that, but I never got around to completing it. And uh, I, I don't even think I had the talent or skills at that time to be able to do it. Certainly not with uh, the care uh, with which uh, Robert Jones Jr. has with his book, The Prophets. Uh, so those are all amazing uh, books I've read. What, a couple more come to mind recently. Uh, one book which is kind of unusual, you might not expect, is A Return to Love by Marianne Williamson. I, I can see that. I can see yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, she was a presidential candidate. Yeah, in 2020. <laughs> I think I read her in the um, And, you know, your mom is a writer too. And, and that's right. Very similar uh, in, in some ways in the way that the way they write about love uh, and about spirituality. And I actually, I, I think Marianne Williamson was the person that first showed me the, this whole notion of love and fear, this juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. To, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and there's that famous line in the Marianne Williamson book that people used to misattribute to I to Mandela, yeah. Also Mandela. Who, who are you to yeah. think that you're gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the universe. So those are some of the books. <laughs> We're gonna get. We're gonna publish a uh, list uh, with your with your interview. I'm gonna publish a, a Boykin, a Keith Boykin book list because <laughs> this is the most books we've ever gotten from uh, one of our authors. Oh, sorry, um, I was going no, but you know what? You you're also the first to say we. The color purple is a common answer from our guests. You were the first to admit to not liking it on the first read. And I actually really respect that, especially given, I think, the turmoil about that book at the time. Um, and I love what you just said about evolution. I think that that's, and even the love and fear argument, I think dovetails with that. I don't think that Alice Walker and Marianne Williamson are actually that far off mm. when we talk about evolution and how love and fear intersect and not that I don't want your book list, which I actually am going to ask you to write down because I will put it in this <laughs> with our with our uh, article. But I almost have to piggyback off of that because I feel like what you do in, in Race Against Time is talking about that same juxtaposition in many ways. I mean, it is something that you bring up here. And it's really interesting, too, because, you know, like this is a book. First of all, I have to show you this. Uh, you know, our, our listeners know that we do these recordings on Zoom so we can see our authors. And they also know that I have a habit. The way I like to read, I don't like to mark my books up. I like to tab them. And I would like to tell you, dear cousin, that you owe me a whole pack oh my God. of post-it tabs. I'll just send you a new <laughs> because- book. Yeah. Just send me a new book. Exactly. Because, I mean, the book, I, I, you know, the book looks like I've, I've got feathers growing out of it. Wow. Um, look, I think that's what happens when you feel so validated by a piece of work, you know, like that your own thought process is like, OK, so I'm not crazy. And I think that what we've witnessed in this, uh, especially in the past four years, but, you know, as you point out here over the past several decades, um, is a level of gaslighting. You know, as as America is darkened, you know, this level of gaslighting that when when you read a book like yours, like your fifth book here, that it's like, oh, my gosh, thank you, because I really, you know, 
<laughs> like I was really, I, I thought that was just me. I'm like, you know, so this being your fifth book, you, you now being, I guess what, three decades into your, your political and literary career and career as an activist. Um, why, why this book right now? Mm. Well, you know, my job in the last four years or so um, during the Trump administration was to cover for CNN everything that was going on with the Trump administration as a political commentator. And it was exhausting. You know, <laughs> I, I was thinking today, just to keep, I just finished another interview a few minutes ago before this, and I was thinking today, I think I've only posted once on Twitter today, and then I posted a few right before the interview. Uh, but I remember when Trump was president, I'd get up every morning at seven or eight and immediately start going through Twitter and all the news articles and all the craziness and the chaos and his tweets. And it was just so much. It was mind boggling. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, just, it, just, it was overwhelming for me. And it made me think this, this has to be documented, not just about Donald Trump, but about this moment in our country, about what this is all about. Because there's a lot of people speaking of gaslighting. A lot of people in the white sort of commentariat who were claiming that people were just supporting him because they were worried about their economic anxiety. And, you know, there were working class people who weren't who whose, need, whose needs weren't being met for the Democratic Party. So the Republicans were finally offering them solutions. And I just thought that was such BS. And almost every Black person I know thought it was BS, too, in part because Black people are working class voters as well. And we weren't going to vote for a, a rabid, racist, sexist, misogynist, homophobic, transphobic bigot to be president of the United States. We knew that this, this washed-up game show host had no qualifications to be in this position, uh, and that he was dividing the country in a way that I've never seen any time in my lifetime. And they were they continued to deny this was happening. So that that was part of what was what was in my head. And I was thinking as I was on TV saying these things over and over, and people were looking at me like I was crazy. You know, Trump tweeted something once about a civil war, um, threatening a civil war, and I said this on CNN. And all the other guests looked at me like I had five years or something like that. Oh, it wasn't a civil war. It was just a joke. It was just a tweet. You guys take so much out of context and so and too seriously. And then we have an insurrection at the United States Capitol. I mean, it, it's like Black people have been screaming to the rafters about these issues for decades, um, and people don't pay attention to us. Um, you know, we've always been the canary in the coal mine. It's time that white America pay attention. Well, you know, it's so funny you say that because, I mean, there, there are several old adages that you use in this book. And one that you don't use <laughs> that you just reminded me of is that, you know, Black people, we have this thing. When we see other Black people running, we run. Right? We're like, oh, okay, I guess we need to right. go <laughs> like right now. And that canary in the coal mine analogy um, reminded me of that because, you know, it, it is that sense of like, we've been telling you, we told you the whole time. You know, it's like now we have these little sayings, you know, trust Black people, trust Black women, you know, but this is not secret. I mean, we've been telling you for generations and, you know, your, your argument here, which I, you know, I think is a common one is that you don't want to hear us. You don't want to hear us because it sacrifices your privilege. Like, you know, you, you have this amazing line, um, that I wish I had just written down in front of me, but you, you know, you talk you about this idea of like, on there. You can't I know I tried to look it up. I had like a hundred and then I was like, that's not going to work. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you basically talk about, you know, 
that it's easier to deny your privilege than to do anything about it. And, and so all this like lip service of like, oh, I'm an ally. And I'm like, but are you? <laughs> you know, because it would involve upending your world. And, and I love that you brought up the Civil War reference because you talk a lot about this cold Civil War, which I, you know, I know you're not the only one to have spoken about this. Um, interestingly enough, you know, a week after the insurrection at the Capitol, uh, Edelman published a poll that found that over half of Americans at that time, and I would assume still, believe we are in a cold civil war. And I thought to myself, well, isn't that interesting since I think it just heated up in a very real and physical and deadly way. And we're still there, right? Like we're seeing this play out every day with everything from voting rights to how we're handling, you know, the economy post-pandemic to getting people back to work, you know. As we speak, Congress is talking about concessions and reconciliations and blah, 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 blah. I mean, how does this all sit with you, you know, as someone who has worked on so many campaigns since, what, the late 80s <laughs> and and had a front row seat to the workings of government and particularly, you know, at the feet of presidents in, in some cases? Yeah, I think that... Um... <sighs> When you when you are up close and you see it, um, it makes you realize just how abnormal this period is in time. Um, and America has always been divided. Like we've always been racially divided since the very beginning, the founding of the republic, if not before. And I I honestly believe, you know, Donald Trump was not the first racist president in the country. Obviously, we had Democrat and Republicans who were racist, but. I've never seen a, a situation that, like we saw in the previous four years, where the president of the United States actually was helping to foment a race war. Uh, that's what's so unusual. I think presidents of both political parties and candidates of both political parties over the course of my lifetime have always known that America is racially divided. And so they may, they've used dog whistles to, to appeal to the sort of the white racist base and things like that. But no one ever really wanted to go too far because they knew that that was a, 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 a monster that they didn't want to let out of the box or a genie they didn't want to let out of the box, if you will. And, uh, and Donald Trump had no no fear of doing that. He just opened up the box, Pandora's box, let everything come out, and let all the, the racists and the conspiracy theorists and and and, and everybody who had some, some sort of crazy idea come forward and be recognized as a legitimate spokesperson. So I think that's one of the biggest differences from you know over the course of time um, and looking at different presidents. I, I talk a lot about various presidents in the book. I worked for Bill Clinton. I went to law school with Barack Obama. So I sort of personal insight into those, those people. Uh, but I don't think the Democrats have been faultless or blameless throughout this at all as well. And um, I, I think historically, Democrats, at least since the 60s, have sort of assumed that they're just going to get the black vote and they sort of give pay lip service to us and visit a black church once or twice before election day and the Sunday. Uh, and, and they think they were all just going to come out and vote for them time and time again. Whereas the Republicans really didn't even try because they knew it was worth their time. So the sad part is that, um, black people, I think, have been continually victimized by the situation that's going on today. 
Uh, as I point out in the book, we, we were the most likely to be victimized by the economic crisis. The, we were disproportionately affected by the public health crisis. Uh, we were obviously the targets of the racial justice crisis. Uh, and then the fourth crisis that took place in 2020 was the crisis of democracy. And that was targeted at Black people as well, because it was take away Black votes in cities like Atlanta and Detroit and Philadelphia places where Black people turned out and voted for somebody other than Donald Trump. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think this this whole... One of the things we, we've seen in the last two elections, um, a lot of the, obviously, the rhetoric that we've encountered. And I, I say this as somebody who works at a Black news outlet. So, you know, we we also get this pushback. And I think rightfully so, understandably so, from would-be Black voters. Like, A, what difference does my vote make when we have all this going on? You know, all this gerrymandering and, you know, all all this these machinations happening. But also, how dare you ask me? to vote against my own interests. Like white people can do that if they want to, but you're not going to tell me, (laughs) you know, who to vote for or why I should vote for this person I don't believe in or to choose a lesser of two evils, as is so often said. There were a lot of, you know, and I'm, I, I personally was glad I, you pointed out what I also agree is a false equivalency between Democrats and Republicans, um, when it comes to black people. But I also loved that you took Democrats to task. I mean, because people who are familiar with you know you as, a Democrat, you know, you've, you've not just from serving Democratic presidents, but in your stances. I mean, you are progressive. You are liberal. I am as well. Um, and I think that so often there's this perception that that means that we just kind of like blindly follow whatever, you know. Um, but you were very clear here that Democrats are falling short and you even suggest, I thought this was, I, I was like, okay, <laughs> that, you know, we need more black conservatives. We need more black, um, black people to engage the Republican party in a real way, not in a transactional way. And that was hard to swallow, but I want to, I want to, I want to understand why. I want to understand why, um, why you feel that's so important. Just like, you know, we had Charles Blow on the show. You referenced Charles in, in, in the book. You know, we wanted to understand. So why should we move back down to the South? Like, <laughs> so that's a similar question. I was like, ooh, you asking a lot. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you on that one. Um, yeah, just somebody, so much to unpack there. Um, I think that we as, as Black voters have a duty to hold our leaders accountable. I have a whole chapter in the book about that. And, and that means holding Black leaders accountable as well as white leaders, Democrats as well as Republicans. And people who are Black and Republican can't just go to Black people and say, hey, vote for the Republican Party without going to the Republican Party and say, hey, let's support Black people. It has to be a two-way street, a symbiotic relationship. And it hasn't been for a lot of today's current 
Black Republicans. But the next point I would just make is that the Democrats who have rested on their laurels for the past 50 years have some work to do, especially right now. In fact, I just uh, this morning drafted an op-ed to send off to a newspaper about what's going on in the Democratic Party today. And there are four incidents I mentioned where I think the Democratic Party needs to step up and do something to help Black people. Remember, Black people are the most loyal constituency of the Democratic Party. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris wouldn't be president without Black people, a president, vice president. And so um, the four things I mentioned, one, we have to stop this mistreatment of Haitian migrants coming to our country. Thank this you. It's not fair. And this is, this is not fair that we have this, this double standard in America where Black people get deported immediately and, and whipped by, by white law enforcement officers on horseback, whereas white and brown-skinned people get sort of treated differently in our country who come, into, come here as, as migrants. Um, Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're also having this happen. It's, I mean, the juxtaposition of this happening on the tail of a refugee crisis from Afghanistan is really like striking, you know, because I'm like, but these people are refugees too. <laughs> you know, like, it's it's, yeah, absolutely a political uprising. I mean, you know, it's like, there's a lot going on here, right, guys, exactly. you know, and, and, and it's not to say that we should not be doing what we, you know, trying to get as many people from because I'm not, you know, like, let's not make that false equivalency either. This is not a one or the other proposition. We can do both and we should, right. is my opinion. So, you know, and, and my opinions are my own, I should say, for, <laughs> for our listeners. But, my, but it is what it is, right? And it's very, given our particular legacy, it's been incredibly, incredibly traumatic to watch um, what's happening at the border, just as it was incredibly traumatic to watch you know, children being held at the border, you know, during the Trump administration, which we haven't seen those images as of late. And we know that that is not entirely resolved either. Um, these families separated, et cetera, et cetera, because there's too many to even mention all these you know, crises. There's, there's, um, there's an old quote from um, historian Barbara Tuckman. She says that every successful revolution eventually puts on their robes of the tyrant it deposed. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. Biden and Kamala Harris have successfully taken over the, the government. And now they're the ones who have the robes of the tyrant and they have to make this government work in a way that uh, is effective and services the people who, who elected them. Absolutely. And I mean, and yes, and not falling subject to this, this hierarchy of oppression where, you know, yes, the oppressed become the oppressors because that is, you are correct. That is the tendency. But, you know, while we're on the subject, I want to talk about another, you know, academic theme that you bring up in this book that I think is really vital to interpreting not only your work, but where we are as America. You know, we, there's this huge debate around identity politics and, you know, is it good? Is it bad? Is it, you know, I, I'm, I'm personally here for it. I think identity is incredibly important. I think embracing identity is incredibly important. And you talk about intersectionality here. And I love that you do. I love it anytime, actually, that not just Black women are talking about intersectionality, because I think it, it became so associated with us in particular, you know, these joined oppressions. But as a Black gay man, you experience a different kind of intersectionality, different intersectional experiences. And, it, and it's really, I think you bring it to the fore so well in this book, uh, um, even when you talk about the through line from from of racism in this country. Like, I love that you began 
with, you know, you say that while most people think slavery is America's original sin, it's actually racism. And that began with their treatment of the indigenous people of America, which we're still seeing. So, I mean, can we talk about like what intersectionality means to you and what and what how you hope we're all kind of embracing it for ourselves now? Hmm. That, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a question that can be answered in so many different levels of, a, of abstraction. But, um, you know, I talked about Kimberly Crenshaw um, and her groundbreaking work about intersectionality uh, and the idea that we can't we can't afford to have single issue uh, analyses of, of political situations today. You can't just say if you're black and you are not a straight cisgender heterosexual man, then your concerns are no longer important. And I talk about that, you know, in the context of my grandmother, who you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, um, and and that was a there was that was an interesting experience. I, I remember very clearly the Clarence Thomas hearings, um, being at, at at her house in, in St. Louis, and um, and she walked in and and she thought that Anita Hill was lying. And I, I couldn't believe it. It was like, how could you, why would you think that Anita Hill is lying? Why wouldn't you think that Clarence Thomas is lying? And it, it just shocked me because I felt like here I was defending the black woman and she was defending the black man. And a lot of it had to do with sort of our upbringing and the way society conditions black women to take the, the word of the black man, to assume that the, the black woman isn't even worthy of the equal weight and consideration as the black man. Uh, and that's really that's really disturbing as well. But, you know, the evolution of that story I talk about later on when she ended up running for office and winning and sort of taking a different point of view. But from my own point of view as a black gay man, you know, I, I talk about holding people accountable in our own community, people like um, Minister Louis Farrakhan, who, um, you know, I've met several times. And uh, Minister Farrakhan was very, very kind to me personally. But he also had a history of of sexism, homophobia, and anti-Semitism that needed to be discussed. And I've always believed in sort of the, the um, Dr. King philosophy that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I'm not a woman, but I still consider myself a feminist. I support the equality and the rights for women. I'm not transgender, but I support the rights for trans people. I'm not Muslim, but I support the, the right to, for Muslims to be treated equally. Uh, and on and on down the line, we don't have to be a member of a particular group to empathize with that group and still support uh, the basic equality for that group. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And and just backtracking a second, your grandmother, I think, would have loved this. <laughs> she would have loved this right. book. <laughs> My cousin Doris, she would have loved this book. And I think she would have loved the way that you talked about her evolution in this book. Oh, also on that note, I'm in the sidebar here because when people read this book, and they should, if you see my name in the acknowledgments, I had nothing to do with the brilliance in this book, but I'm incredibly, incredibly touched that I was, <laughs> I was included. Um, now, you know, I do want to ask you, because I, I've thought this many times because of my own response to this book. Like, this was a book that I was sitting there like, signifying like, mm-hmm, yep. And then, you know, like I was having a conversation with you and this has been a, an incredible time. I will say this for, um, I think black thought and black literature, you know, it, it is, as we often hear it referred to a bittersweet moment in history yet again, obviously one of many for us, but it is also one, I, I don't think we've seen this level of platforming of 
Black thought before. Um, I mean, maybe since the Harlem Renaissance, maybe, you know, Black arts movement, you know, but it's happening in, in this very tangible, substantive way. And I, I'm so thrilled to see so many people taking advantage of it. But I do wonder sometimes, do you ever get concerned that you're preaching to the choir? Like, do you do like, how do you hope that people will use this book, engage with this book? Who do you hope will read this book? Yeah, as an author, of course, you want everybody to read your book. <laughs> I mean, I hope everybody does. I think there's a lot to glean here. I mean, there's a lot of history. Well, you know, I, I was surprised um, last weekend. I asked people on Instagram just to post photos of themselves with the book. And I was surprised by the people who did it. I mean, they were black and white, young and old, straight and gay, male and female, um, people from all different backgrounds. And I, I was really, really surprised because uh, you never know who's reading, who's who's actually going to buy your book or eat, or if you're just talking, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing being a writer. You know, I, I, this is my desk here. So I'm usually sitting here at my desk by myself in my apartment, typing away on my computer. And you're just, uh, you're just like in your own space. And you don't really know like, how anybody else in the universe is going to interpret it or receive it once you once you finished it. So when you're done, it's like you've birthed this thing, this, this, this book that goes out into the universe and becomes its own, own entity. Uh, and people have their own experience with it and interpret it in the ways that works for them. So that's fascinating in and of itself. Uh, but for me, it, it's, it's, it's I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's just, I, I can't say that I want just Black people to read it. I want all people to read it. And that sounds cliche, but I think that there is something here for white people as well. And there's something to learn. You know, I, somebody asked me recently, why would white people even want to pay attention? This is such a difficult conversation for them to have. And my answer was, that white America is never going to feel safe in this country until black America feels safe in this country. You know, the whole idea of no justice, no peace. If white America, if white America wants peace, the only way for white America to have peace is for black people to have a sense of justice. We're also going to continue to have to, to pay billions of dollars for police officers and, and border patrol agents and, and for law enforcement and buying guns. You know, all this is out of fear. They're all afraid of the black and brown, blackening and browning, darkening America. Whereas they could just decide to invest those resources in creating a more just and equitable society. Uh, and then we wouldn't have, they wouldn't have to be so afraid of the, of all those communities that they think are, are threatening them. Well, yes, because as you write, you know, they, they should be glad that we just want equality and not revenge. <laughs> like we don't, we don't really, we just, you know, you also quote Baldwin here and when you say the world is white no longer and it never will be white again. And, you know, this is why I hope that people will engage with race against time, the politics of a darkening America, because this is the inevitable. This is where we are. Um, what, whatever race you are. This is where we are right now. And so I think people have so much to glean from this book. I could talk to you about it all day, but I'm going to let you go because I know you have tons of interviews to do. But thank you for this book and thank you for your time. I love that you came on because it would have felt weird if you did not. <laughs> I'm not going to come on to see you, of course. You got to see me. You got to see me. But yes, my 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 brilliant cousin, Keith Boykin. Everybody grab Race Against Time. This is such a great book and I really think you're going to love it. I loved it. I really ate, I like inhaled this book. So thank you so much, Marisa. I love you. I love what you do. I love you too. I think it's the first time I've said that on this oh, podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out, and we appreciate your feedback so much. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Maisha. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. What I'm currently reading is Bamboozled by Jesus, How God Tricked Me into the Life of My Dreams by Yvonne Orji. Yes, that's the same Yvonne Orji from Insecure. And uh, it's an interesting read. You know, I'm gonna be honest, I'm not a religious person and Yvonne is, and I found a lot to grasp in this book. Uh, and I hope you will, too. We'll be talking to her soon on the podcast. I hope you'll tune in and enjoy that. But for now, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit. <laughs>